Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. You know, there's, there's sometimes in those moments during a week where you realize that you have um, kind of made a mistake. Uh, midweek, uh, Todd and I talking through the sermon and kind of saying, hey, where are you going to go? And where were you last week? What, where's, what's your trajectory for, for uh, this following week? I realize, and this is just uh, one of those um, mistakes. Last week, we ended our reading at uh, verse 13. The reality is, I should not have ended my reading at that point because I included all the text up to verse 28. And today's focus is going to start with 29. But since we did not read it last week, we will read it for this morning. So starting at verse 14, with our focus starting at verse 29. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your, your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations for a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whatever, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select your lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of, his out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, spared houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now our focus. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn 
in the land of Egypt. From the who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all and Pharaoh rose up in the in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, and their kneading bowls before being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sights of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night, it was a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the same statute of the Passover, for no foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat it of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be, no, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel by their host. This is the word of the Lord. So today we are coming to a close of our second mini-series in the book of Exodus. This book, for me, it has been absolutely thrilling to see how foundational this book is 
for much of what we learn about in the New Testament, especially in regards to the gospel. Seeing the big picture themes in the Old Testament and the New Testament is really a beautiful thing to be able to wrap your arms around, to be able to see that the Old Testament is not just this disconnected, old, archaic book that has no connection to us today, and to be able to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together to tell us this big story of God. And when you can trace the plan of God in both of these testaments, the Old and the New Testament, when you can trace it from beginning to end, it makes you love the message of the gospel even more. From a theological perspective, this is called biblical theology. You connect the storyline of the Bible and you are able to see its overall purpose. Our text this morning, the focusing on verses 29 through 50, is uh, it's recording this final moment when Israel is finally delivered by God out of Egyptian slavery. It, it is the culmination of the ten plagues, the fulfillment of God's promises, and the, a redefinition of Israel's relationship with God. Like other parts in Egypt, or in Exodus, this text communicates some extremely important messages that we can glean, which have an application beyond God's dealing with just the nation of Israel. There are lessons for us, New Testament people, who have believed the gospel, or who are still seeking to know more about this good news of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to lay out a number of lessons for us to glean this morning. First of all, the first lesson is this. We can see in this final plague of the death of the firstborn child that there is a tragic divide between those who by faith applied the blood on the doorpost and those who did not. There's a a tragic, there's a in between those who believe by faith and have applied the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost and those who did not. This distinction resulted in one group who experienced, who did not de- experience the, the consequences on be, of being on the wrong side of a holy God and another group that was not graciously passed over. God warned Pharaoh explicitly about this day. This day is coming, Pharaoh. The end of the ninth plague when darkness covered Egypt for three days. Moses gave this ominous warning in Exodus chapter 11. He said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and the firstborn of all the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or will ever be again. Moses gave this warning. This is what God says, Pharaoh. This warning. Listen clearly. And the plague would affect everyone on every social level. It would assault the Egyptian worldview of the special status of the firstborn child. And if you are a parent, you know that firstborn child is like, you look in and go, 
even if it is the ugliest baby in the whole hospital, you go, this thing is beautiful. It is special. It is mine. This is a gorgeous child. It will hopefully carry on the legend of being a broom to the next generation. And it assaults that very worldview. And it also sends a message clearly that God was bringing a disastrous judgment. But it wasn't just the frightening judgment that was so significant. It was the preservation and the protection of Israel that made this this plague so stunning. Moses had warned Pharaoh about this as well. So not only is judgment coming to you who sits on the throne and to everyone on every social level, but also, listen to this, Pharaoh, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Chapter 12 gives a chilling account of what happened At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. This plague had a double effect. It communicated both God's judgment and his mercy at the same time, right? God's judgment and his mercy. It demonstrated God's frightening power and his protective kindness. And this distinction between the judgment of God and the mercy of God based upon the faith-applied blood is a central part of the whole story of the Bible. The death of the firstborn is only a foretaste of what is to come. The book of Revelation also tells us that there will be a day when God will pour out his judgment on the world for its rebellion. Revelation 16 says that the angels from heaven will pour out bowls of wrath, which will include, and listen to these carefully, which will include water being turned into blood, painful skin afflictions, darkness, disease, and hail. Any of that sound familiar? Revelation 16.21 says that they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. In other words, the plagues are going to return. And this eventually leads to the day of ultimate judgment. The ultimate judgment. Revelation 20 gives us a sobering picture of the greatest divide that ever take place. And listen to this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The dividing line 
on this final judgment will be the same dividing line that we saw in Exodus. Those who put their faith in God's word and believe in God's deliverance through the blood of a lamb will be saved. Period. In the New Testament, the lamb was Jesus Christ. And those who believe, refuse to believe in God's word will be condemned and will be judged. It's true for us. It's true for you. You must, to be saved, you must trust in the work of Jesus Christ to be saved. Phil Riken, listen to this, gives the following word. We will all be there. The high and the low, the rich and the poor, the sinners and the saints. From the dungeon to the throne, no one will escape. No one will be granted an exemption. No one will receive any special treatment. The rich may travel first class all of their lives, but when they get to the final judgment, God will not examine their bank accounts. Nor will the poor have something coming to them simply because their lives were more difficult. God is no respecter of persons. And he will judge everyone by the same standard. He does not care what color we are, how much money we have, where we go to school, and what company we work for, or even how good we are. And throw this slide up, Leah. He goes on to say this. What matters to God is whether or not we have faith in the sacrifice Those who trust in the blood of Christ will receive. Those who do not hold on to him and to his cross will be finally fatally. The great divide between salvation and damnation is marked in blood. Brothers and sisters, I hope this, this is for me one of the most important points for this morning. And the most important points for us as a church is that you have friends, neighbors, and family members who have not believed in the good news of Jesus Christ. And we sit idly by as if nothing is going to really matter. That the faith that we believe so dearly does not really matter for them. It is critical. There is a tragic divide between life and death, applied faith and refusal. And the thing that we need to do is share the good news of Jesus Christ to all who are perishing. It is critical. We cannot sit idly by, for there will be a day when judgment will come. The the death of the firstborn shows a tragic divide. One that we will see again later on. Second, unconditional surrender. The next thing that we're going to observe in this text is the way in which Pharaoh is completely beaten. After hardening his heart and resisting the will of God over and over and over and over again, Pharaoh has learned the hard way that God always wins. Period. Resisting God never works well for human beings. Never. And Pharaoh finally comes to the point where he must give in and he must give up. 
The overwhelming force of God's power has left him absolutely shattered as a man, as a father, and as a leader. Absolutely shattered. Verses 31 to 32 record the conversation with Moses and Aaron. There's no bargaining. There's no excuses. There's no conditions. Pharaoh has lost. His only option is unconditional surrender. Listen, he's saying to Moses and Aaron, up, go, get out, take everything, go worship. Take these children of Israel and go and worship your God. Be up, be gone. And did you catch that last little thing that he said? And bless me also. Isn't that kind of ironic? There's a few interesting things I want you to note about this conversation. First, Pharaoh wasted no time. The overwhelming force of God's judgment was obvious, and it was absolutely frightening. This time, secondly, this time was the first time that Pharaoh actually called the slaves, the people of Israel. He finally recognized, oh, they're no longer my slave. These are, the peop- these are Yahweh's people. These are the people of Israel. Then his statement, his statement, go, serve the Lord, as you said, is a complete capitulation to Moses and Aaron. He finally turns and says, okay, go and, and take all your people. Not just the men, not just a day's journey, just get out of town. Leave. And amazingly, he asks Moses to bless him. Moses had come to the, Pharaoh had come to the conclusion that he was on the wrong side of God. He felt the painful consequences of resisting God's will, and he knew that he needed mercy from this great and powerful God. That's why he asked Moses to bless him. The grief and regret must have been enormous. Think of it. His arrogance caused death of a person in every home, including his own. However, this was not true repentance on Moses, on Pharaoh's part, was it? Because we'll see next in, this, in our next mini-series, it's only a matter of time before Pharaoh hardens his heart again and pursues the Israelites into the wilderness. That is part of the tragedy and the lesson learned that we can learn in this story in the end God wins because he is God and the sooner that we get this right and we come to the right conclusion about that fact the better it is for all of us Pharaoh is not like is not unlike many people including you and me there are lots of people including probably many in this room this morning, many people who tragically, constantly, moment by moment, resist God's will, despite all of the warnings, all the consequences, all that should be obvious. We think that we can negotiate with God, right? That we can bargain with God, that we can pursue partial surrender to Him. Listen, God, if I just do this, will that appease you? Can, can, is this enough to get by, to get out of this? We, we often want our circumstances to change, right? We want the pain to just stop. We want hope to return. 
But Jesus' answer to this problem is not personal renovation. And it's not behavior modification. Jesus' answer is that a person must, be, must repent and be born again. To repent means that there is a radical change of mind when it comes to who God is, who you are, and what runs your life. That's what it means to repent. To be born again means that you come to the absolute end of yourself and you cry out to God and say, just make me completely new. Make me completely new from the inside out. It means that you've come to the conclusion that you desperately need Jesus' help. Not just to change the problems in your life, but to change who you really and fundamentally are. I am done with being that person. I, I love my, I've got a tattoo right here of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. For behold, the new has come. I am done with the old man. I am done. I come to the end. It no longer works. It never worked. I am a new creation in Christ. The first steps toward Jesus is to come to a point of conditional surrender. Thirdly, undeserved blessing. This lesson turns the focus from, from Pharaoh to Israel, and we see the way in which their deliverance resulted in more than just freedom. More than just freedom. They left Egypt with blessings which they could have never acquired on their own. They, they walked out of the land wealthy with stuff that was not even theirs in the first place. Verses 33 to 36 de describe the manner by which they, the people left Egypt. They left quickly, but they left with blessings. Did, did you pick it up? The people of Israel did, uh, had also done as Moses told them. For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, just as they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. These were slaves. The poorest of poor, the neglected, the abused, are walking out with gold and silver, and clothing, and they plundered the Egyptians. It's that last statement that is so striking. They plundered the Egyptians. What is happening is more than just a payoff. You owe me this. The goods that were, were given to the Israelites represented a military victory. A military victory. They left Egypt as more than just slaves. They were brought out of Egypt as conquerors. They marched out. You may have heard the phrase, to the victor goes the, the spoils. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. To the victor goes the spoils. Another account of this moment is given to us in Numbers 33. 
And this picture, and the picture given is one of victorious people leaving boldly while the Egyptians are absolutely terrified. And would you not also? There's not one household in your whole city that was not, had, didn't have a dead person. Your neighbors. You had been through all the other nine plagues. This was it. They were terrified. Numbers 33. They set out from Ramesses on the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Egypt, Israel, went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying their firstborns, whom the Lord had struck down among them on their gods also. The God, the Lord, executed judgments. This is the way that God always works for his people. His children share in his victory. You share in the victory of Christ. From the spiritual standpoint, those who are in Christ are blessed with the spoils of his victory. Here are a few examples. Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. That's, that's like taking it exponentially to the next level. You are, you're, yes, you're a conqueror, but you are more than a conqueror. Or Ephesians 1, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not every blessing here on earth every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places everything those who are in christ has received every spiritual blessing in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. <laughs> Do you get it? So there are blessings for those who are the sons of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Blessings that are completely and totally, completely and totally undeserved. In fact, the blessing only reminds you of the beauty of your deliverance. Fourthly, the next remarkable thing of this text comes primarily from verses 40 and 42. And we'll look at those later in a moment, but verses 37 and 36 contain the moment we have been waiting for since we first heard about Israel's history and Israel's absolute misery. It was the moment that God promised to Abraham. It, and it was the moment promised to, to Moses. And now it is finally here. 37 to 36, the, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, a mixed 
multitude of them also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of dough that were brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust, they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Notice that they traveled quickly out of Egypt and therefore had no time to even let the bread rise. We'll look more into this when we get into verse chapter 13. But we have to note that they had no real provisions for themselves. While they had a good haul of goods from Egypt, they, they got all the gold, all the silver, all the clothing. There were no mini marts or grocery stores on the way to the promised land. That gold, silver, and clothing was not going to get them one stinking thing. They lacked food, and they lacked water, and they will be forced to trust in the Lord fully for this promised deliverance. The text tells us they traveled from Ramesses to Succoth. The nation was 600,000 men, and it was a mixed multitude. In other words, there were some Israelites who, who left with them. More on this later, but the main point of this text is the connection between Israel's departure from Egypt and 430 years. God told Abraham in Genesis 15 that Israel would be afflicted for 400 years after which they would be delivered. Therefore, for generations to come, the Passover and the Exodus would be monuments of the way in which God keeps his promises. This is one of the subplots of Exodus. God makes and keeps his promises. God makes and keeps his promises. We heard about this in Exodus chapter 2 when God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God had not forgotten his promises. And throughout the book of Exodus, we have heard God continually make promises about delivering his people. God continually promised that they were going to be delivered out of Egypt, and now God was making good on his promise. Even though it seemed dark and absolutely dreary and hopeless at times, God had proven his ability to keep his word. For the rest of their days, the moment of deliverance would be a rallying cry to trust in God. It was constantly, if you read through the biblical story of redemption, there is constantly, remember, remember, because we are so quick to forget, right? Always remember when? Remember when God did this? It becomes a rallying cry. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of what seems deplorable or hopeless, remember when God is always good in making and keeping his promises. Based on his historical promise-keeping character, Israel and you and I can trust God. Do you realize that the essence of Christianity and the hope of salvation is based upon God's ability to keep his promises? 
If it was based upon our ability to keep our promises, we are doomed to hell. But it is based on God's ability to keep us. When you put your faith in Christ, when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are banking your eternal destiny on the belief that the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are believing in John 1.12 that is absolutely eternally true and believable to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. So believing that God keeps his promises is the starting point of the Christian faith. But it is also how you live the Christian life. It's, the, it's not just the gospel that you believed in. It's the gospel that we're standing in and we are believing in. You believe the promises of God for you. You believe that all things work together for good. That his mercies are new every morning. And some of you need to hear that. His mercies this morning are new and fresh again. You, we also believe that there's no temptation that will overwhelm you or crush you. We also need to believe that his grace is sufficient. We also need to believe that there is no use worrying because God loves you. I know that it's cheesy but the older that I get the more convinced I am of the wisdom I said it I believe it that settles it it sounds cheesy dumb I think I could have heard my parents say that some 30 40 years ago but it's true God said it I believe it that settles it period the Bible is filled with all over with examples that are meant to encourage our faith in God's promises. The final spiritual lesson that we find in this text this morning is about spiritual identity. The Exodus and Passover celebrations mark and marked the people of God forever. From this point forward, they have a brand new identity. Verses 43, 43 through 50 record specific instructions about how the, the meal was to be celebrated and, and who should be celebrating that meal. But let's look specifically at 48 and 49. If a stranger shall, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall, be no, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Notice that no one could participate in the Passover unless he was circumcised or unless all the males in his household were circumcised. This symbol meant that a person had identified himself and his family with God's covenant community. That they are set apart from the rest of the world. They have been ceremonially, by blood, set apart from the rest of the community. 
In fact, even if you weren't a native-born Israelite, you could participate in the Passover. Speaking about Gentiles, right? But only if you were circumcised. Only if you were set apart. In other words, as important as their physical identity was, there was a spiritual reality in play here that was extremely important. Other people could be a part of God's people, but they had to fully identify with Him. They had to receive a new spiritual identity. From a symbolic perspective, that's why baptism is so important. It communicates that a person has received a new spiritual identity, that they're marked off as part of this community of faith. Going into the waters of baptism as an adult testifies of what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. For the old is gone and the new has come. The waters of baptism testify that a person's identity is now fundamentally marked by the participation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It triumphantly, triumphantly declares, I've been delivered. So, you can see why this moment was so important for Israel and for the rest of the New Testament. For the last six weeks, we've been waiting for this moment. For God to finally deliver His people. Israel waited 430 years. They waited for this promised deliverance. And I hope it emboldens your faith to see that to see this deliverance finally come. It's a comfort, but it's also a warning. God keeps His promises. And if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, that is really good news. If you have by faith believed in the blood of Christ, that He has covered over your sins, your past, your present, your future, that He has accomplished something that you can never do, that is good news. Because you are now set apart. You are protected from the coming judgment. But, if you are not covered by the blood of Jesus, if you have not believed in the perfect work of of Jesus Christ, it is an absolutely frightening thought. An issue that would be good for you to settle today. Our text ends with this beautiful statement. On that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Our God is a God who delivers. Amen? Let us pray.
Father God, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you are a God who makes good on every one of your promises. We, we, can, we can rest in the fact that all things, all things work together for good. We can rest in the fact that your mercies, even this morning, are new every single morning. We can rest in the fa fact that there is no temptation that will overwhelm us or crush us, nothing. We can rest in the fact that your grace is always sufficient in this moment, in tomorrow, in, in the weeks and years to come. We can rest in the fact that there is absolutely no use in worrying because you love us. We are your children. God, so we, we praise you for that. We praise you that you, you protect us and cover us with the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we praise you for that, God. But Lord, I, I also know that there is a very good chance that this morning that there are those who are just skeptics. That there are those who have been doing this Christian routine for a number of years. They've been doing the good thing, and the nice thing, the moral thing, but they have not believed in faith. in the blood of Christ and his work of redemption that they are not new creations so Father God would you move in the hearts of men and women this morning in this year day church the churches of New Lenox the churches of the Lincoln Way area and beyond would you stir in their hearts to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And would you awaken them to new life in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that we can trust you in that, in making people new. To make it so, Lord. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. God's people said it.